Brought to you by the Capital One Venture X Card. Earn unlimited 2X miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. Plus, receive premium travel benefits like access to over 1,300 airport lounges and a $300 annual credit for bookings through Capital One Travel. Unlock a whole new world of travel with the Capital One Venture X Card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Lounge access is subject to change. See CapitalOne.com for details. Hey, everyone. Want to talk to you about our friends at Squarespace. If you're running a business and you are using Squarespace, that means you have access to great analytics. You can use insights to grow that business, learn where your site visits and sales are coming from, and analyze which channels are most effective. You can improve your website and build a marketing strategy based on your top keywords or most popular products and content. Just go to squarespace.com slash stuff for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code stuff, S-T-U-F-F, to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Sometimes science goes too far. Dark Matters. Twisted But True, Wednesdays at 10 on Science. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. Say hey, Chuck. Hey, Chuck. That makes this stuff you should know. That's such an old joke. Yeah. Terrible. It's, it's still, it's got a lot of, uh, lot of... Staying power. Sure. And little else. It has as much staying power as cat urine. <laughs> Chuck, you want to hear the history of the microwave oven? I'd love to. In 40 seconds or less? All right. Back in 1947, a guy named Percy Spencer was touring the labs of the Raytheon Corporation okay. when he passed by a magnetron. If he had unpopped popcorn in his pocket, then I'm leaving right now. We'll get to that. Okay. That doesn't count against my 40 seconds. I time. thought like popcorn popped in his pocket or something. No, he had a chocolate bar in his pocket and it oh, melted. Wow. And he really? said, what the hell's going on here? So he actually ran and got a bag of popping corn and it started popping too. And then he finished the whole thing off spectacularly by getting a pot and a raw egg and holding it near the magnetron and it exploded into his buddy's face. Wow. Anyway, he figured he out a that short this time thing later. was producing <laughs> microwaves. No, he lived to be an old man. But he figured out that this was producing microwaves, and he um, put it in an invention. So everybody who has a microwave oven today has a tiny magnetron in their house. He put it in an invention? Yeah. <laughs> That's a unique way of saying that. Yeah. <laughs> That's, well, good for him. Yeah. Anyway, the point of this is that that's the Raytheon Corporation where this, sure. this discovery was made. And the Raytheon Corporation was largely a government-funded outfit. Uh, so we would call that a government experiment of sorts. Sure. It's not the craziest, though, Chuck. Not not even close. No. You want to talk about some crazy government experiments? Maybe five of them today? Sounds like a great idea. All right. Let's do <laughs> it, man. Uh, this is written by Robert Lamb of uh, Stuff from the Science Lab, we should point out. Yeah. I hope we're not stealing this article. Is he going to do this at some point? I didn't even ask him. I'm sure they, he wanted to, but it's too okay. late now. <laughs> uh, what's the first one here, Josh, about uh, transplanting heads onto other bodies? Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah, because think about it, Chuck. Think about the applications of this. I mean, like technically, if you don't look at it as a head transplant, you can make the case that this is a full body transplant. Yeah, depends you're- on if you're the chicken or the egg, I guess. Def- definitely. Does that make sense? <laughs> a little. We'll find out when the right. people write in. Um, the, the, but th- this is something that we could definitely use. If we could attach the spinal cord. Uh, but yeah. But we cannot. Is that the thing that's holding it back? Well, that's the thing that keeps the result from being a quadriplegic. 
But they said that applications, maybe if someone just wants to live, they'd rather live as a quadriplegic than die. Yeah, okay. Especially if you're already a quadriplegic and you're used to it, but you have organ failure. Hey, that's pretty random. But uh-huh. now let's think about it. We talked about Braille. What if you are blind and handless? Uh, I guess you use the the e-readers that read things to you. Oh, okay, out loud. And Chuck, this idea of full body transplantation uh-huh. does have its roots in government experiments. Yes, indeed. Uh, specifically, as far back as 1908, when a U.S. surgeon named Charles Guthrie decided that he wanted to find out if he could put uh, one dog's head on another dog's body. And by God, Chuck Bryant has a picture <laughs> of it, the two-headed dog. Yeah, he actually did this, and it was not replacing one head with another. Like you said, he attached, <laughs> he attached a dog's head un- underneath the chin of the other dog, so they were, in fact, chin to chin. And the other dog was like, oh, where are you going? Right. So he actually did this, and, it, and it, I don't know if you want to say it worked. Because the second head could only um, loll about. Yeah, they said that there were some um, just normal um, reflex reactions and and sounds, but not dog type sounds. Yeah, it couldn't fetch a paper or anything, right? Yeah. So uh, I guess you could make the case though that that was successful. At the very least, they got a pretty cool picture out of it. Well, blood flowed from one head to the other through the brain and then back out. So that's. Pretty cool. It, it worked in a way. You're going to post that pic on the blog? No, it's Please. gross. Please. No way. So that was the first one. That's 1908. That's pretty old-timey, right? Indeed. And then we cut to 1951 when the Soviets are saying, oh, the Americans are doing it. Well, we got to do it, too. There was a lot of that going on back then. There really was. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, before that, there was an experiment in the 40s, right? Right. This thing is on YouTube. If you type in experiments in the revival of dead organisms, you're going to find a 1940s um, instructional film-esque film. (laughs) Yeah, did you Uh, like that? Yeah. Um, That shows people killing dogs Uh, and reviving them. I'm not going to watch it then. And apparently, well, it's not very graphic. It's more like, here, have some uh, cyanide dog, and then they bring the dog back. Um, Also, supposedly, if... You can just barely see it, uh-huh. that it's a dog's head that's moving and, like, responding and everything, but it's being kept alive externally through, like, an artificial heart and lungs wow. pumping uh, blood into the brain and back out for circulation. I don't need to see that. They don't show a good shot of it, so it's possible it's a trick, but I was reading a post on it that showed that this stuff was real. They actually did kill this dog and revive it. It was very scientific. It wasn't a joke or a hoax. Right. Um, so we have been able to... Was that Vladimir? Uh, was that someone else? It, I think it was Vladimir because okay. it was the Soviets. He was a sick puppy. He was. Yes. And speaking of puppy, <laughs> he did the same dog thing where he would uh, he transplanted 20 puppy heads with head, shoulders, lungs, four limbs, mm-hmm. and an esophagus that emptied outside of the dog, transplanted them onto other dogs. Cool. And some of them live, one lived as long as 29 days, and they actually, uh, there's some log notes here, 9 a.m., donor's head eagerly drank water or milk and tugged as if trying to separate itself from the recipient's body. Nice. And uh, one of them bit one of the staff members, which was my favorite part. Yeah. And uh, one of them bit the other dog on the ear, and the dog tried to shake it off. Crazy. So there were actual dog things happening. Yeah. That's pretty puppy-esque. Yeah. And awful. 
This sick, it sickens me. I didn't even want to talk about this. Yeah, really? It sickens me. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Dead puppy heads on uh, other dogs? <laughs> it's like the cutest horrific experiment ever. Oh, it's, it's The only awful. way it could be cuter is if they transplanted unicorn heads. Yeah. There were pictures of this, but I couldn't even go there. Well, Chuck, this uh, horrible type of experimentation culminated in 1970 when an American neurosurgeon named Robert J. White yep. transplanted the living head of one monkey onto the headless body of another, and it worked, and he was almost bitten by the monkey. That's how they considered it a, a success. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, everybody in the lab cheered when the monkey tried to bite the guy, and then after a week, they put it down. Yeah. So good for these crazy, crazy people. And meanwhile, um, of course, the Soviets and the Americans were shooting chimps into space, never right. to return again. And you know they're um, up there still. Yeah, little chimp bodies or bones probably at this point. And some in space capsules. Well, you have to wonder, I mean, what kind of process of physical degradation does uh, a monkey undergo after death in space? I don't know. Answer me. I don't know. <laughs> All right, let's move on, Chuck, to Please. acoustic kitty. Yeah, this More is... animal abuse. Uh, well, it actually is, and um, this was courtesy, uh, once again, of the Cold War, the U.S. and Soviet superpowers battling each other for position, and the CIA spent maybe as much as $20 million, at least really? $10 million. Yeah. So we'll, let's just settle in 15 And five years. And five years to implant uh, listening devices into a cat, complete with battery and an antenna in the tail. Yeah. Little kitty, acoustic kitty is what they called it. And it was a single cat. Yeah. They were they were they alternately surgically outfitted it with um, eavesdropping devices, and tried to train it. Because think about it, the presence of a cat is not the most you know cats wander into places. They sure. kind of go wherever <laughs> they want. So yeah, it yeah. makes kind of it makes sense. The logic is there, right? To an extent, uh, but apparently the cat was just a little too willful for this. Um, they figured out that it went off. And just kind of left whenever it got hungry. Right. So they tried to um, surgically manipulate yeah. um, its its sense of hunger. Yeah. So it wouldn't get hungry as often. Indeed. Uh, and then finally, Chuck, it threw itself under a cab. Well, you know why? Why? It was it was the kitty acoustic kitty's first test mission. They they sent the little kitty on its first uh, eavesdropping mission to eavesdrop on these two Russian men in a park. Really? In a public park. And so they dropped the cat off, and then that's when the cat ran from the cab and got killed. Yeah. Which is not funny at all. No, it's bad enough to watch a, a cat get hit by a car. Yeah. But imagine a $10 million cat that you spent five years training get hit by a car in its first mission. That's the part that I think was funny, was the egg on the face of the U.S. government. Yeah, and there was egg plenty, and they kept it under wraps until uh, 2001 when that stuff was declassified. Yes, but still partially censored. I read part of it. It's, you know, all the fun words are blanked over. <laughs> right. You know. Right. Like who was doing it? Actually, there was uh, one part left in there. CIA officer Victor Marchetti. Uh-huh. He he addressed the hunger thing. He said they put in a wire to thwart the hunger. I don't even know what that means. Yeah, I don't. I I read that as well, yeah. and I don't know how you would do that. I mean, how do you was wire like a cat a, up, keeping ghrelin out? I have no idea. Probably. Yeah. So also awful because it involves animals. Chuck. Josh. Have you ever heard of zero point energy? I have. Had you before today? No. I hadn't either. What is that, Josh? So, from what I can gather, it's a, it's a, something that comes out of, uh, quantum mechanics. It's not supposed to happen under, uh, classical physics, but right. in quantum physics it does. Apparently, innate energy that a particle has, even after all other external energies are removed. Okay. Right? Say in a vacuum. Right. Um, so they figured out that 
this means that particles have innate energy. But one of the, um, I guess, more surprising aspects of reducing a particle to zero-point energy is that they kind of come in and out of existence randomly. Yeah. Which is not supposed to happen. Sure. But apparently this is uh, it's especially susceptible to it when you completely remove gravity. Right. And this pursuit, the pursuit of figuring out how to use zero-gravity machines to wink things in and out of existence was supposedly a Nazi experiment, huh? Right. And the Nazis were famous for many, many odd, uh, unproven, unsubstantiated experiments that they may or may not have conducted. Yes. But this one was real. The Nazi bell is what they called it. Yeah. That's what Dr. Cook called it. Yeah. And Dr. Cook is Nick Cook, right? The Jane's Defense Weekly editor, Uh who kind of went off the deep end. I read a book review on Salon of his book, and it's, you know, he's he's a very, very respected journalist, um, but he really got into conspiratorial world with this one. Yeah, he wrote the book, The Hunt for Zero Point, where he broke it all down, basically, and alleged that this all happened. And he's not some crackpot, or he wasn't at the time. Right. No. So he he was, you know, a respected a respected dude. Well, he believes that an SS officer in charge of the V2 rocket uh-huh. program, which eventually got the US to the moon cuz don't forget we under operation or project paperclip, we um drafted tons of Nazi scientists. Yeah, yeah. Including uh Werner von Braun, uh-huh. who got us to the moon. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, Vern. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh apparently the guy who was running the V2 pro- rocket program um traded this information about zero gravity uh, or zero point energy to the U.S. And uh, Cook's whole point is that some guy comes up with this real method of using an anti-gravity machine uh-huh. uh, for a military application. And he, I guess, came up with a file from um, a, someone in the Defense Department saying there's no real scientific or there's no military application here. Right. So Cook's premise was... There totally was, and they wouldn't have said that if they didn't already know how to do it. Well, of course. So he was saying that we knew how to do that and that the whole Foo Fighter phenomenon, UFO sightings, right. all that is evidence of us having figured out zero-point gravity. How about that? It's crazy. And I did a little extra digging around, and I found out there's this guy named Tim Tim Ventura, and he runs something called American Anti-Gravity. And he claims, this is five years ago, and I... And, as usual, when you, when you can't find follow-up info, yeah, it's usually not a good sign. No, but he claims five years ago that uh, a fellow named John Deering of SARA, the Scientific Applications and Research Associates, who actually have a lot of government contracts, are not crackpots either. Right, they supposedly replicated key elements of the Nazi Bell technology, anti-gravity propulsion. Right, and they supposedly recreated this like five years ago, and they were looking for funding. And uh, were too secretive to get the funding that they needed, and it's, it was kind of up in the air last I checked. From from what I understand, and I don't know if it's necessarily zero-point gravity, but using quantum mechanics, people have figured out how to get disks to levitate. Right. So, I mean, it's not without it's not outside of the realm of possibility. He's got stuff on the YouTube. Does he? Yeah. yeah. But so does David Blaine. <laughs> He's a big phony. <laughs> what? No, Josh, he doesn't levitate. It's a trick. What? <laughs> Let's talk about sex, baby, in space. Yeah, sex in space. They have researched this um, <laughs> behind closed doors, obviously, although NASA says that they've never done such a thing. But clearly they have because they want to colonize 
the moon in space one day, and you yeah. you got to know everything. Remember we talked about, well, the doomsday lunar doomsday arc saved humanity, uh-huh. that they were going to have their sexy business up there if they had to wait a century. Stephen Hawking said it's essential for human survival. It depends on being you know, able to procreate in space. Okay, in space. I was going to say, you don't have to be Stephen Hawking to realize that. you got to <laughs> reproduce or else the species dies out, right? No matter whether we're here right. in orbit or on the moon or on Mars or wherever, sure. right? So, yes, of course NASA would engage in this kind of stuff. Specifically, there was a uh, guy named uh, Pierre Kohler. He was a French astronomer, uh, and he wrote a book in 2000 called The Last Mission. And he said that four <laughs> years earlier, NASA um, checked out ten different zero-gravity um, sexual positions right. on a 1996 mission. NASA says, no, uh and, and Pierre Kohler was like, uh-huh. And I feel stupid. I didn't even know there were ten yeah. here on Earth. No. No. <laughs> I'll draw you some pictures okay. later. Uh, and obviously, like everything else, the Soviets have uh, done the same with their cosmonauts, supposedly. Uh, <laughs> what did cos- they call them? <laughs> Cosmonauts? No, the uh, what, the research into sex, what, the type of sexual positions. Oh, I don't know. Human docking procedures. Well, that's what Robert called it, I think. He put it in quotes. I thought that meant he was just making a wry joke. We'll have to ask him. Yeah. But I love that, human docking procedure. Yeah. Sure. Uh, Rus- Russian cosmonaut Valenta, Val- Valentina Tereshkova got pregnant in 1974 by another cosmonaut. Mm-hmm. So there were some that said this was probably, A, maybe not done in space, but done just to see, like, set up to see what would happen. Like, has his sperm been affected? Has her uterus been affected? Whatever. But it all turned out fine. Their baby was completely normal. Right. So that's a good sign. And some wonder if uh, possibly that um, union wasn't a science experiment in and of itself just to find out. Oh, maybe so. Um, But, yeah, we have such a little grasp on what, the effects of zero gravity have on the human body. Yeah, exactly. That it, I mean, it's a worthwhile look. It could be a sperm killer. Who knows? It could do all sorts of crazy stuff. You're like, right. remember the um, uh, sarcopenia uh-huh. episode oh, yeah. where the uh, neurons, the type of neurons that die off and are replaced or, or taken over by other type of neurons happens the opposite to astronauts who've been in zero gravity. Oh, yeah, that's right. And it does here on Earth. Yeah. Who would expect that? Sure. So you got to test it out. Yeah. Have you heard of the two suit? No. It's the number two suit. This, uh, I don't know why it was invented by an actress and poet, but uh, it was. <laughs> Her name is Vanna Bonta, and she uh, invented this suit that basically keeps two people attached. You can put two suits together, if you know what I'm saying, oh, yeah. to make one suit. <laughs> wow. And there's zippers, and there's Velcro, and there's openings, and there's places to go <laughs> Cool w- within this suit. And uh, each one has a cigarette tucked into like a <laughs> exactly the the arm. And the idea is to stabilize uh, human proximity, so you can stay attached without much effort. So you can save your effort for coitus. How much are they? I don't know if you can buy them. Uh. And I don't know if the government said, "Hey, give me some of those two suits." But I mean, it sounds like they that, gave us Tang. Yeah, exactly. So let's get get the two suit out there, and let's get to the last one, shall we, buddy? Sure. The psychic Cold War. Yeah, did you see Men Who Stare at Goats? I love that movie. I didn't see it. I loved it. It got like a 47%, pretty much across the board, like half and half. It was a good movie. Was it based on this, or was it just fanciful goings-on of George Clooney? No, there was... I'm writing a blog post on this today. There really was a program that this thing was kind of based on. The characters were based on real-life people. Um, 
Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll show it to you. So we're talking about a psychic spies, right? Yeah, one they're the they're both the Soviets and the Americans were uh, engaged in uh, paranormal research. Yeah, um, the the Soviets since the twenties. Um, and then the U.S. in the 40s or 50s was like, oh, we better catch up with this. and never did. They're reading our minds, so we need to read their minds. Exactly. Um, and there's a ton of applications for this for the military. Like, oh, sure. For example, if you're um, manning a submarine and you can't surface, uh, why don't you just send whatever information you need using your mind into yeah. the mind of somebody else? Or why get out of bed? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what I would do. That's a great one, too. i just beam my messages everywhere. Um, a man-machine interface where we could... Um, basically psychically link ourselves to a computer to okay. interact with it. Me likey. Upload or download data. So does this stuff work, though, Josh? I don't know. Is it real? It's real I, that they did the research. They definitely did do the research. And in 1973, the Rand Corporation was asked to create um, a, a brief study on who was doing better at it, and the Rand Corporation said, uh, the Soviets, big time. Right. The Soviets were much more... Um, investigatory with the biological, the physiological gotcha. aspects of this, the basis of it, whereas with Americans, it was um, psychology, all psychological-based. Right. Um, theory and practice were kept separate with America. Gotcha. In, in um, the Soviet study, they came up with theories and then tested them. Like, it was really scientific. So if anybody was going to get anywhere with it, the Rand Corporation concluded that it was definitely going to be the Soviets. Well, good for the Ruskies. Yeah, they they, uh, they still are. Yeah, and, you know, we had Operation uh, or Project Stargate going until 1995. Explain. So that was, well, that's remote viewing, basically. And at one point, Operation Stargate had 22 active military and or private remote viewers on staff. That's pretty cool. It is pretty I cool. I wonder how much that pays. Remote viewing? Mm-hmm. Eh, I bet it pays pretty good. Specialized. Uh, yeah, I bet you can pretty much demand whatever salary you want. <laughs> it's like, so. oh, yeah, well, go hire somebody else then, buddy. Right. Go down to the Home Depot, those guys hanging up front. <laughs> See if they can remote view for you. <laughs> well, that's about it for crazy government experiments. I think there's probably a ton more on the site, though. You know, obviously, the uh, CIA experimented with LSD, buddy. Yeah, well, that's number one on our list. That's why I got a whole podcast. Love that one. Mm-hmm. Um, all you have to do is type uh, maybe government and experiments in the handy search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And that leads us to listener mail. Josh, i got a couple of quick ones today. Okay. This one is from Sasha, a.k.a. Sparky. And Sasha Sparky says, a recent podcast mentioned pica, and that's when you eat uh, things that aren't food. And it reminded me of my own five-year-old cravings. As a young girl, I had an insatiable craving for match heads. Huh. Yeah. Sulfur, huh? Uh-huh, I guess so. I would bite down on the matches and scrape off the heads and eat them. And I kept a secret stash <laughs> of pilfered matches under my pillow. I distinctly remember the salty, sulfurous flavor and chalky texture. I'm not sure anyone in my family caught on, and I apparently outgrew it eventually. I'm not sure if this is unique pica craving or not. I just thought I'd share it. Well. From Sasha Sparky, a.k.a. The Match Eater. Maybe that's why she's sparky. Yeah, I'll bet. Either that or her love of sulfur just developed into a love of arson. (laughs) And this one is from Tony, and you're going to like this one. I don't know if you actually read this. Uh, 1 a.m., Tony wrote us. He is a business director for Gamma Vacuum. Mm -hmm. And he says, guys, just thought you might like to know that I am sending an email from a hotel in Geneva, Switzerland, and have a couple of meetings tomorrow at CERN. Awesome. Trying to sell them our vacuum pumps, basically the Large Hadron Collider guy. He's a traveling vacuum salesman. And he just said he wanted to know that one of, uh, he is a traveling vacuum salesman. 
Uh, he said he just wanted to let us know that one of the Stuff You Should Know Army foot soldiers is on the premises conducting business. Good for him. Thank you, Tony. And then he sent back a follow-up email after I emailed him and said that he wants uh, Jerry to say hi, and she refuses, but he requests it. Uh, is it against her religion? I would respect that, <laughs> but out of my own self-interest uh, and not to look like a jackass. I'm not sure what that means. And uh, that's pretty much it. Maybe a horse whinny, a sound effect, just to know that she's there, <laughs> is what he says. Jerry's going with the against her religion thing, it looks like. Okay. She uh, remains mute. That coupled with a good horse whinny will get you places. Nay. <laughs> is that a good horse whinny? Yes, and it's actually Amish for no. <laughs> Are there questions that should not be asked? Experiments that should not be performed? Doors that should remain forever closed. Sometimes science goes too far. Join me for this new series that explores real life stories of the dark side of science. Dark Matters, Twisted But True. Wednesdays at 10 on Science. Wow. Uh, if you have ever seen the movie The Thing with Two Heads and want to tell us what you thought about it, you just go ahead and send that in an email. Um, also, if you're going to CERN, we definitely want to hear about that as well. Uh, you can email us at stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Hey, Sarah. I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human-moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.